Well, please take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together once again and for this last time in the season to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 1. We will finish up this morning John's prologue to his Gospel. Then, as you know, next week is our missions conference. Next week, we will have the privilege of having Conrad Mbewe, the Spurgeon of Africa, here in our pulpit, leading us for our annual Global Missions Conference. So I hope you and your family are planning to be part of all those wonderful events and to, to have time with our missionaries here. That will be a great week together. Our text this morning is John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. But go ahead and begin reading with me at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you as children hungry for your truth, your person, your will to be done in our lives. Lord, illumine our minds and hearts with your Spirit. Draw us deep in our understanding, our study of the Word. Help us, Father God, to see and to behold and to wonder and marvel again at Christ our Lord. Christ our King. And let us see Him and understand Him as the fullest revelation given among men of Your person and Your will. Lead us in the truth, O God. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You know, there are times in our lives when we all need help, especially when we all need a little more understanding, a little more explanation. And most of you know that the, the majority of my undergrad, undergrad work was done in engineering and, and studying to be an engineer before God called me to ministry. I went through all the different math courses, calculus, all those different things. I even got a minor in mathematics in my undergrad. It was interesting, though, once again, this semester is John David, my son, is in engineering school, and he was taking differential equations this semester. At one point, he was really wrestling with some things that were going on in the homework he had to do, and he's like, Dad, can you just help me figure this out? And I'm like, I, son, I have absolutely no clue. You know, everything I learned in seminary, I had to dump other information to make room for all that information. And so literally, if it's beyond Algebra 1 anymore, I, I am just incapable. I'm paralyzed by the idea of math. And I had to tell him that. I, I'm just absolutely no help in aiding your understanding of what you have to do. The truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, in spiritual terms, in and of ourselves, we are all that way. 
in our sinfulness, in our depravity, in our wretchedness, we do not have the ability to discern or to rightly understand spiritual things. Indeed, the Bible even says that we are hardened to the truth of Scripture. We are hardened to the truth of God. We are hardened to the truth of our sinfulness and our need for salvation. But you know, in the wonder of wonders, in the beauty of the gospel, Jesus gives us a new heart. Jesus causes us, by His grace, to be born again. Jesus renews our minds. Jesus provides everything that we need so that we can understand and discern spiritual things. And that's really what John gets to the heart of in these last two verses of, John, of John's prologue this morning. God has sent His Son as the fullest revelation of Himself among man. And what John says here is that Jesus explains, Jesus makes known to us in the fullest sense, not only the sinfulness of this world and of our hearts, but the person and the purpose and the salvation of Almighty God. This morning we're going to finish John's prologue and as we come into verses 17 and 18, it is clear that John is making an amazing contrast that shows us that Jesus is the focus of divine revelation and that he himself is the way of life. And so let's, we're just going to look at this two, these two verses and two points this morning. First of all, let's consider God fully revealed. God fully revealed. Look at verse 17 there. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now again, if we back up to verse 16, John has just stated that believers have received the fullness of God's glory in the person of the Son, and that in receiving this, we are overflowed with grace upon grace. In verse 17, John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, now relates this to Moses, why, in the midst of this prologue, is John bringing up Moses? Why is the Spirit divinely inspiring him to make this reference here? Well, because Moses was the most famous Old Testament figure who beheld the glory of God more than any other person under the Old Covenant. If anyone among the Old Testament saints could have been said to have seen God, it was Moses. In Exodus 33.1, it says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But even then, even though Moses had that special relationship and beheld the glory of God in a very special way, it still wasn't enough for him. He wanted to see more of God. So in Exodus 33, verse 12, Moses said, now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And this request from Moses pleased God. In Exodus 33, verse 17 through 19, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And so Moses said again, please show me your glory. And God did exactly that. In one of the most profound acts of grace, the Lord hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand until his glory had passed by. And then he removed his hand and he allowed Moses to see the backside of his glory. 
Then the very next thing that happened in Exodus 34 was the giving of the tablets of the law a second time. You remember God gave Moses the tablets of the law, then they fell into idolatry with the golden calf. Moses came down the mountain, he smashed the tablets. But now, after God had revealed his glory to Moses, hiding him in the cleft of the rock and allowing him to see the backside of his glory, that leads directly into, again, God giving the tablets of the law to Moses. And so in in Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him again and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Moses, more than any other Old Testament figure, had beheld directly the glory of the Lord. Now that brings us back to the question of why John is bringing up Moses and the law as he is writing in his prologue. Well, it is God's grace that led him to save his people from slavery and give them his holy law. And even after they had sinned with the golden calf and suffered punishment, God gave them the tablets of the law a second time through Moses as a demonstration of his grace and mercy. So, The end of verse 16 says, we have all received from his fullness grace upon grace. And John is now relating this in in another direction. The first grace was God revealing his glory and giving his law through Moses. The second greater grace was God, God himself coming in person, fulfilling the law, and granting to men the fullness of grace and truth. The law of God is the testimony of the righteousness of God, but it cannot save anyone. That's why we needed God's solution for our sin. That's why we've needed Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's a critical thing that we always want to understand as we look at the Bible as a whole. The law was given to show us our need, to point us to the Savior. As we consider the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial laws given to God's people at Mount Sinai, those were the two main objectives, to reveal God's utter holiness and his perfect righteous standard. God's law is an expression of his character as much as it is an expression of his will. But secondly, the law is also given to show man the standard that he must attain to as well as our utter inability to meet that standard. That's why a significant portion of this Old Testament law was taken up telling the Israelites how they must have their sin atoned for through the offering of a blood sacrifice. The law given through Moses is good. As Paul said in Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. However, by works of the law, no one can ever be justified. This is also what Paul says in Romans 3.20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. And that is why the sacrifice of animals, the blood of animals, also can never justify a man. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Justification has always and only ever been by faith in God's provision of a sacrifice. 
That's why Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's always only ever been one way of salvation and that is by faith. The reality is in the sinfulness of the human heart, exposure to the law doesn't somehow lead us, you know, internally, you know, out of our own will. It doesn't lead us to obey more. Actually, the law stokes our natural rebellion. To quote Paul again from Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, this is what Paul said. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And that's us in our natural state, right? When we are confronted with God's law, the immediate tendency of our heart is to rebel against that law. I remember years ago taking the youth to to Six Flags, you know, for our annual Six Flags trip. And it was interesting waiting in line at, at one of the roller coasters there. They had a sign along, along the way there as we were about to go up the steps to the loading dock for the coaster. And it was a sign that says, please place your gum in the trash receptacles. And there was a trash can right there. But the mere fact that they had put a sign up, everyone had stuck their gum to the sign. You know, it was just a big wad of gum around the side. There's a trash can right there, right? But that's a simple illustration of, of what the sinfulness of the human heart does. You know, if there had been no sign, people would have probably put their gum in the trash. But the fact that they put up a sign saying you need to do this, it just incites that rebellionist that says, oh, yeah, I'm going to stick it right there. That's our human heart. That's just a small demonstration of our depravity. That's what the Apostle Paul experienced. The law said do not covet. Oh, I'm going to show you coveting. The law exacerbates, brings to the surface the sinfulness of our human heart, our need for salvation. So the law saves no one. It is Christ alone who saves. By his grace, through faith, in the truth of Christ, we are redeemed. God did promise grace and he showed grace to his people even under the truth of the old covenant. But grace and truth have now come fully in Jesus Christ. That is the point that John is making. He was the only man, Jesus was the only man to ever live a perfect life. Jesus kept every single tenet of the law. Jesus fulfilled every requirement of God. Why? So that those who trust in him could be spared from his wrath, declared righteous in God's sight, and granted the gift of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, that is who Jesus is, and that is what he has done. Everything necessary, everything necessary to reconcile us to a holy God has been done for us by Jesus Christ our Lord. We must simply believe turn from our sin and trust in him this is what paul is celebrating in romans 8 you know he's just written about what the law does in the human heart in romans 7 but that leads him to to romans 8 which is that that pinnacle that mountain of truth about what is the ground of the assurance of our salvation and and paul says there for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do 
By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so it is through the truth of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ that we are set free from the law of sin and death and that we are made alive spiritually alive truly alive through that relationship with jesus christ now before i leave this point to go on to the next it's it's just so important that i ask us a couple questions here first of all to you that are believers have you slipped into a thinking a mindset whereby you believe that you somehow earn or merit god's favor because of your law keeping you know this really is the heart of legalism it is good and right to, to be obedient to the law. I do not want to dis, I don't want to downplay that in any way. The law for the believer is continues to be our guide in life, our guide in the path of righteousness. And we demonstrate our love for Christ and obedience to the law. That is, that is John's whole point in the letter of 1 John. But in our flesh, we can slip into a mindset where even as believers, we can begin to think that somehow because we are moral, we are meriting God's favor. Somehow by, by doing the right things, we, we, God treats us better or more right. Beware of that, Christian. Beware of that. You are not saved by grace and kept by the law. You are saved by grace and kept by grace, provided to you through Jesus Christ alone. Obedience is good and right and proper, but it is an expression of your love for Christ. Law-keeping is never a substitute for your love for Christ. To those of you who may be here who are unbelievers, maybe you, know, maybe you think you've got things figured out in, in terms of religion. Maybe you think you have some sort of agreement with God. Maybe you think that, that just by, again, living a good moral life, that being a good, decent person, that this is somehow going to merit God's favor for you. I want you to understand. There are, there are hundreds and thousands, if not millions, of people in hell who thought living a good life would give them right standing before God. You could live your best life now, to quote one heretical television preacher, and still be forever separated from God in a little place called hell. There's only one path of salvation. There's only one way of life, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14, 6. It is faith in him alone. It is trusting in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone that saves us. And what does that mean? It means you believe that the perfect life Jesus lived, he lived for you. That the sacrificial death, Jesus died on the cross, he died for you in your place. And that in rising from the grave on the third day, he rose for you. That you might have life eternal as you believe in him. That is saving faith. I plead with you this day on the basis of Scripture. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let's go then to the second point that we see in verse 18. 
And my second point is this. We just simply see God fully explained. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. As we think about it, the entire prologue has really been building to this verse. This is the key verse of this entire passage because it pounds home to the reader the significance of what Christ has revealed to mankind. The first phrase captures the mystery that is inherent to the Godhead. No man has beheld God in all of his fullness. God is pure spirit. He is invisible to human eyes. But being God, he can manifest, manifest himself to humanity when he so desires. And God has done this many times in biblical history. He appeared in some form in the garden, and he spoke with Adam and Eve. He appeared to Abraham in some form. And we've already talked about how he appeared to Moses. But prior to Jesus, no one had ever beheld God in all of his fullness. But all of that changed in the incarnation as Emmanuel, as God, came to live among men. And that is really the heart of the comparison that John is making with these two verses. As one commentator said it so well, the contrast is that Moses points to grace, but Jesus performs grace. Moses reports the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. The law mirrors the light of God. Jesus is the light of God. So do you see the contrast that John is giving us here? As he talks about Moses and the law, and then he talks about the fullness of God among men. And it says here in verse 18 that Jesus is the only God. Now we have come across the word before in the Greek for only begotten before, but it's always as only begotten son or only begotten one. This Greek construction here is incredibly unique. It says the only begotten God, the eternally generated God. Here, again, beyond a doubt, Jesus is definitively referred to as God. This is yet another irrefutable statement of the full divinity of Christ. He is God. He is the one who is at the Father's side. If you maybe have a different translation of the Bible, kind of the older English, other translations say in the bosom of the Father. The idea here from the Greek word kolpos is the idea of, of being so close to one that you are, you are hugged into their chest. You're so close to someone as, as if you're a part of another. And that captures for us the relationship between the members of the Godhead. Especially the closeness of the relationship between the Father and the Son. This phrase establishes that God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son are separate beings, and yet they are engaged in deep, intimate fellowship. And because of the intimacy of that relationship, who could be more capable of revealing God to men, of explaining God to men? And the answer is no one. The last phrase of verse 18, look there, says, he has made him known. And this, this is a wonderful term in the original language. I, I, don't, I don't put a lot of the Greek before you when I'm preaching in the New Testament, but this is actually the Greek term exegeomai. It is where we get our English term exegesis. It means to unfold, to declare, to narrate, to explain. And, and it's, it, you know, we... we probably understand most of us the term exegesis this is what i'm doing for you right now right 
I study a text of Scripture. I dive into it. I explore the language. And then I bring forth the fruit of my study in a sermon to help us all understand and apply the truth of God to our lives. Well, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what Jesus does for the Godhead. Jesus exegetes the Godhead for mortal men. No one has seen God except for the Son. The Son is God, and He has seen the Father as closely as the Father can be seen. So, as God incarnate, Jesus has unfolded. He has declared. He has explained. He has manifested the person and the presence of God for all of humanity. That is what Jesus has done for all of us. This is why he said in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or John 14, verses 7 through 9. Jesus said to his disciples, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And you remember Philip? Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This mirrors what he said in John chapter 10, verse 30, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, many parts of the Bible are complex. There are some doctrines of Scripture that are hard to understand. Do you want understanding? Then look to Christ. Jesus is God's exegesis of the truth. Jesus is the one who explains fully, completely, the person and the purpose and the will of Almighty God. And that is the contrast, again, that that John is bringing to us. There's Moses and the law, which is a precursor, which points to the truth, which points to the necessity of faith, which points to the Savior. And then there is the Savior himself. Again, to quote the previous commentator, Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. Jesus himself was lifted up for us. Moses gave manna from heaven. Jesus himself is the true bread from heaven. Moses wrote about Christ, but Christ is Christ. The law of Moses was the word of God, but Christ was God the word. That is the sort of contrast that John wants us to see. The whole point is the vast superiority of Jesus over Moses. And the focus is on seeing the glory of God. Moses glimpsed the back of God's glory. Jesus embodies the fullness of God's glory. There is an infinite qualitative difference between Moses the creature and Christ the creator. Between Moses the pointer to grace and Christ the performer of grace. That is the beauty that we are meant to see in this text, brothers and sisters. And so as we seek to live this life that God has called us to, as we seek to be faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we do so beholding Him. 
understanding that that which is difficult or that which may seem obscure to us in the moment is made clear in and through Jesus Christ who goes before us. Do you want to understand the the power of God? Well, Jesus explains the power of God. In Jesus, we see a power that is capable of destroying, of, 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 of dethroning all evil, and yet also a power that gently binds up the brokenhearted. Do you want to understand God's wisdom? Jesus is God's wisdom. Jesus shows us. He helps us understand God's wisdom. You think of all the different things he said and taught during his earthly ministry. Think of when the the religious leaders were trying to trap him by asking whether or not we should pay taxes to to Rome. You know, if Jesus said no, then he would have been guilty of insurrection against the, the ruling government at that time. If he said yes, he would have fallen out of favor with the Jews who resented the Roman occupation. What did Jesus have the wisdom to say? He said, show me a denarius whose inscription is on it. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God, what, render unto God what is God's. If you want to understand the wisdom of God, look to Jesus. How about holiness? You want to understand what holiness is, what it means to be not of this world? Jesus explains that to us as well. He was a Savior who in His humanity was never guilty of one sinful act, one sinful word, or even one sinful thought. We can never be perfect on our own. Jesus was perfect for us. If you want to understand holiness, look to your Savior and behold what He has done, how He has been holy for you. And then you will see how His holiness is worked out in you. How about God's wrath? Do you want to understand God's wrath? Once again, the answer is look to Jesus. You know, we, we think of God's wrath being displayed upon sinners. Jesus displayed wrath that day. He cleansed the temple. He forged a whip. He began to literally whip men who were, who were bringing sin into the very courts of the temple by being false money changers and deceitful, requiring things of the people that God did not require He called the people back to the reality that his father's house was meant to be a house of prayer. Jesus demonstrated wrath. Jesus also bore God's wrath in our place so that we could be forgiven and reconciled. Jesus, of course, also is the fullest explanation of God's purpose in redemption. You know, you talk about Moses when when the people were plagued by poisonous serpents lifting up the snake on the pole before the people, and if they looked to it, they would be saved from death, from the poison of those serpents. And Jesus drew upon that same metaphor in John chapter 3, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Jesus reveals to us so perfectly God's purpose in redemption. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How about God's compassion? You know, God is always 
faithfully been a God of, of compassion, just as he has always faithfully been a God of, of wrath and holiness. We, we don't set God's character against itself. We don't characterize God as being one thing in the Old Testament and something different in the New Testament. God's character and person are constant. But we behold the fullness of God's compassion in Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who, when he was confronted with the reality of sin, living among sinful men, Jesus didn't recoil from that. When Jesus beheld someone in sin, he moved toward them with grace and forgiveness. He said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He cleansed the leper. He set the demoniac free. He wept over Jerusalem. We even see his compassion in how he wept at the grave of Lazarus. And finally, we see that Jesus fully explains, he exegetes for us, God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, right? God would have been completely just to allow us all to die in our sin and be forever separated from him in hell. If God saved no one, we could still not accuse him of being unjust. But God, in his love and mercy, and grace provided our only way of salvation, our only way of forgiveness. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of our sin in God's sight. We are justified before Him by the blood of our Savior. We are adopted as His very own children. We are sealed by His Holy Spirit. We are set free from the law of sin and death and in our new nature. We are set free to walk in obedience to the one who made us for himself. We are free to go and sin no more. Every aspect of godliness, brothers and sisters, any question we have about God, any question we have about understanding the doctrine of salvation, anything related to his person, Jesus Christ is God's perfect explanation for them all. And what is the purpose of this explanation? That we would live to know Him and in knowing Him, love Him and in loving Him, obey Him and in obeying Him, growing to be like Him. That's His purpose. You want to talk about you know, a fresh start? That's how we always treat the new year. We, we are here on the first day of 2023. As Pastor Jamani already alluded, you know, there, there are many of us who have made resolutions. I hope every single one of us here will understand this one thing. There is only one resolution that changes every aspect of our lives. And that is Christ's resolution to save us. It's not our resolution at all. We, in and of ourselves, can resolve to do very little. Really, very, very little, and, and, and hardly any of it is, is of any eternal consequence. We are saved because Christ resolved to save us, to make us his own in the covenant of redemption. And so may we follow in his steps, brothers and sisters, as we look to the joy, as we look towards the fresh start, as we think of ourselves entering a new year, 
May we, be a sim- may we simply be a people who endeavor above all else to know and to love Christ. Because you know what? Knowing and loving Christ, that's going to have the impact you want to see in your marriage. Knowing and loving Christ, that's going to have the impact that you want to see in your parenting. Knowing and loving Christ is going to have an impact on how you view and understand your work and how you serve and honor the authorities over you. Knowing and loving Christ is going to have an effect on how you eat and and what you do as as a steward of the temple of your body. Knowing and loving Christ frames and sets and determines the course of all other things in our lives if we're seeing it rightly. And it's all about Christ our King. Romans 8, 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the purpose of our lives. To be conformed to the Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren.